You're listening to the Cornerstone Chapel High School Youth Ministry. Let's head into the service for this week's message. I'm Pastor Turner. Some of you guys know me. Some of you guys don't know me. Some of you guys remember me. Some of you guys are not happy to see me because you thought you were gone. I was gone. Hey, thanks, man. I feel the love. Uh, I'm helping uh, as Pastor Tyler is, uh, he, since he did the overnight beach thing, he wanted to be able to come home and not have to prepare a sermon for you guys. So he had asked me last week to, to share and to teach this morning. And I, when he asked me, I didn't even have to think twice. I was like, yeah, I mean, I'd love to. It'd be great. I, I love youth. I love youth ministry. Some of you guys know I was your middle school youth pastor. For those of you that are new or never don't remember me, um, I did middle school youth ministry for a long time. And now I'm here uh, helping you guys, talking to you guys again this morning. But I, when you all graduate high school, if, if some of you guys are fortunate enough to graduate, because I know it's tough, um, you get into young adults, and that's our 18 to 29-year-olds, and that's the ministry that I'm now working with. So when you graduate high school, you get me back, So if, if, if the Lord doesn't take me home first. So anyways, all right, who needs a Bible? Raise your hand if you need a Bible. All right, can we get, can get, can we get these people some Bibles? Keep them up high, keep them up high. Um, we'll get you guys some Bibles. And when you get that Bible, open it up to the book of Acts, chapter 27. We're going to be in chapter 27. And uh, I've titled the message, Safe Harbors, Shipwrecks, and Snake Bites. And I was looking for something that had to do with the shark because I've been watching Shark Week all week. And I was looking for something with that. Unfortunately, there's only a snake that's mentioned here, not a shark. But if we use our imagination... We can pretend it's a land shark or something like that, all right? A snake shark or something. Can we, we'll just, we'll stretch it a little bit. It won't change the story at all. It'll just be that, so. All right, starting in Acts chapter 27. I'm going to actually go through this entire chapter, but before we start, I just want to take a minute. Let's pray. Let's still our hearts before the Lord, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us to hear what He wants to say to us, okay? So let's bow our heads. Father, we thank You. For this time to be together this morning, we know that, Lord, um, you delight when your church comes together and when they sing about you and to you. And, Lord, you even tell us in your word that when two or more are gathered, you are there in their midst. And so, Lord, this morning as we were singing and worshiping, Lord, it was very evident to me, Father, that you were here with us. Just You were just in the presence of our praises, Lord. And, Father, as we look into your word this morning, God, I pray, Father, that, number one, you will give me the right words, that, Lord, as I speak, it will be exactly what you want said this morning. And number two, Father, I ask that you would speak directly to the hearts of those that need to hear this this morning, that, Lord, it would be an encouragement, it would be an opportunity for you by your Spirit to show them something that maybe they don't see already, and that, Lord, you would use this for your purposes and the lives of each one of us in here this morning. And so, God, we yield ourselves and we hold ourselves to your word. And we thank you, Jesus, that we are not left alone to try and figure out how to live for you, but you've given us your Bible and your word that we can trust and we can cling to and we can even understand. And so, God, we give thanks to you in, in, this, na- in this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Acts chapter 27, I'm going to get you caught up to speed because this is the, actually the end of the book. There's only 28 chapters in the book. And so what's happening here, for those of you that aren't familiar, is that the Apostle Paul uh, gets saved in Acts chapter 9. And the whole book of Acts from, from chapters 1 through 8 is, is about Jesus establishing the church. So in chapter 1 and 2, you get the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. 
You get the establishment of the church. You get some incredible evangelistic experiences by the Apostle Peter. In fact, one, one time he's preaching and over 3,000 respond to the gospel in, in a moment where he's preaching. If you can imagine what that must have been like. And that was just the people that responded. We don't know how many people were listening to him. Um, and so God just explodes on the scene for the church in the beginning of Acts. And then as you get a little bit further on into the book of Acts, you get this guy by the name of Paul the Apostle Paul, some of you guys might know him, and he ends up really writing about two-thirds of the entire New Testament for us today. And so when you read through the book of Acts, when, starting in, in chapter 10 and on, it's really about the life of Paul. And so when you get to different parts of Acts, um, for instance, in chapter 18, he's in a place called Corinth. Well, that's when he would write the letters to First and Second Corinthians. So as he was traveling and doing these, this missionary work, he was writing letters to the churches that he had planted and visited, and he was taking that time to help get them to understand how to be the church and how to do church and how to live for Christ. And so Paul was just instrumental in that. So when you get to the end of Acts here, there's an incident that happens in Acts chapter 21 where the Apostle Paul is actually in Jerusalem. He had he'd been on this these two missionary journeys, and he had been traveling around. He had planted, we think, possibly 30 to 40 churches um, in three years, um, three to five years. And so he was just busy. Now, I want you to understand the amount of traveling that he had done. It would have been as though he had traveled literally around the world one time. Now, this is the ancient world. This isn't where you jump on a Boeing 747, jump on and you know, fly around the world and just jump through all these time zones. That's not what it was like. It was getting on a, a, a donkey or a horse. It was walking. It was, it was possibly picking up um, you know, a ship and, and traveling across the open seas to get to different places. And so Paul was, was literally delivering God's word to people by hand that had never heard it before. He's just a remarkable guy. If you, if you need a hero in the Bible, Paul's a guy that you can look up to. And so he gets back to Jerusalem in chapter 21, and the Jewish people don't like him because Paul's primary message was to take the gospel to those that were not Jewish. They were Gentiles. So raise your hand in here if you are a Jew, if you know you're a Jew. Are there any, are any Jews in here? It's okay. You're safe. It's good. One, two. Okay. Yeah. So Paul was ministering to all the rest of us. You two, you guys got it from Peter. That's good. You know, you're good. But he gave the gospel message to the Gentile world, everybody that's not Jewish. So anything outside of Jerusalem. And so that's what God used him for. God was expanding the gospel, opening it up so that you and I could be saved even to today. That's great. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But the Jews did not like Paul. Because Paul was also a Jew. He was a Sadducee, I mean a Pharisee, and he was trained in the law, and he had converted to Christianity from Judaism as one who was a leader in the, in the Pharisaical law. And so the Jews did not like Paul. In fact, they plot this, this plan, they make the, hatch this plot to have him arrested in chapter 21, and it causes quite a riot. He's taken under armed guard, and when he's under guard, he says, they, he says the Romans say, okay, well, Paul... Because you're Jewish, we're going to put you on trial. And, and he says, okay, well, that's fine. And he goes, but I need a fair trial, so bring my accusers and let's talk about this because they're accusing me of doing stuff I never did. And they said, okay, fine. So the next day they show up, and Paul says, you know, hey, look, these guys are lying. I never did any of these things. This is, you can read about this in, in chapters 21 um, and 22 a little bit. And he says, and so then uh, they say, well, fine, we're going to whip you. 
and we're going to send you on your way. And he says, well, hold on, you wouldn't whip a Roman citizen, would you? So now Paul was both a Jew and a Roman citizen. So now Paul has the privilege of being able to be put under trial by the Roman government, which would be fair for him because he knew that the Jews would not give him a fair trial. And so he basically appeals to Caesar. And it would be the same thing as if you were drug into court, you could appeal to a, a, you know, af after the court had decided, you could have an, an appeal to that decision. And, and it's like appealing to the Supreme Court, if you will. If you guys know government, you, you can run a, a trial all the way up to the Supreme Court, if you will. So Paul appeals to Rome, and so they send him on his way to Rome. And so they're going to pay for him to go to Rome. And so here we are in chapter 27, Paul is on his way to Rome. So that's where we are. He's, he's, God's taking him to Rome for this trial. So starting there in, in, in verses 1 through 6, um, he basically says to Paul there, uh, or we learn from Paul that he's been handed over to this centurion by the name of Julius. You know, Julius, that's a crazy name for a guy, but that's his name. And, uh, and a centurion was somebody who would, would rule over a hundred soldiers. Hence, century, century means 100. Centurion is a guy who would lead over 100 soldiers. So he's a pretty powerful military guy. And so he is going to take Paul along with another handful of, of prisoners to Rome. And so they get on this boat, and um, they're heading up the coast out of Asia, and they're going to head up to Rome and in, into Italy. And uh, it says that in verse 3, it says, We landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go. Uh, to his friends that might provide for his needs. See, Paul was well-known because he'd been traveling quite a bit, and so pretty much any town he would go to, there were people that would have known him that would have been affected by his ministry. And so when they found out that he was coming through, they were like, hey, let's go bring him some food. Let's take him some money. Let's help him for this journey, some clothing even. And so Julius recognizes that Paul's a non-threatening prisoner. And he gives him kindness, and he allows him to meet with his friends, his, the other believers, and so they move on. So then they get back the next day, they head out into sea, and they, they um, sail down through Cyprus, and, uh, and different places that are hard for me to pronounce, so I'm not going to even try. But then when it gets to verse 7, it says this, it says in verse 7, We made slow headway for many days, and had difficulty arriving off of Nidus, that's Nidus, that's how you pronounce that one, I can say that one, even though it looks different. And it says, when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite of Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lacey. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, so uh, dangerous because by now it was after the east, the fast, so Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. So let me just share with you what's happening here. So what's happening is they get to this place of Nidus and, um, and they end up in a port that's called Fair Havens. And Paul is thinking, well, look, the, the, the time of the season is the fall. And in this part of the Mediterranean Sea, when it begins to be the fall, they get these crazy challenging weather patterns where there's great storms and waves and wind and it makes it very difficult for them to travel and so the the captain wants to go on and press press on and get to a place called phoenix now phoenix is not phoenix arizona okay just so you guys know this is in the mediterranean it's a different phoenix right and so he wants to go to phoenix and the reason he wants to go to phoenix is because it's a better port 
and he has a whole bunch of sailors on board. This is a huge ship. And he wants these guys to hang out in the winter in a place where they actually want to be. And Phoenix was kind of like, you know, for lack of a better term, it was, a, it was like a Las Vegas of shipping ports. I mean, you could find anything you want there. There was gambling, there was idolatry, there was prostitution. And so if, you're, if these sailors wanted to have a winter to serve there and hang out, that would be a place where they would want to be voting for. You know, they're like, Captain, let's go to Phoenix. At least we can winter there, right? And so you got to remember, these, these people don't know the Lord, right? They're just kind of living out their lives. And so the captain says, we're going to press on. Well, Paul senses that this is not a good choice. He says, let's stay in Fair Havens, let's stay here for the winter, and let's not risk it. I think if we do this, we could risk losing our lives even. And the captain, or or Julius, I'm sorry, the centurion, takes the advice of the captain and the guy who owns the ship and says, no, we're going to press on to Phoenix. So they don't listen to Paul. Now, that word uh, Fair Havens there in verse 8, if you look at that there, that word in the Greek means safe harbor. That's what it literally means, safe harbor. Um, so when you translate the Greek language, it's safe harbor. I don't know why they use fair havens in the NIV Bible, which is what we're looking at. But maybe your New King James or your ESV says safe harbor. But that's what it literally should be translated to is safe harbor. And so Paul was trying to tell them, look, this is not good for us. And so they press forward. And so they keep going, even though he warns them. And so when you get to verse 12... It says that, uh, it says, since the, major har- since the harbor was unsuitable for winter, the majority decided to, to, uh, to sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. And then you get into verse 13, and this is the beginning of what I would call the storm section of our story. Paul says here in verse 13, he says, When the gentle so- uh, south wind began to blow, they thought that they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called uh, Quada, I believe, uh, we were hardly able to make life, the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together, fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of, of Citrus. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. That would be all of the ship's furniture. So like the captain's desk and all the stuff that would be weighing the ship down. And it says, um, after the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, now, before I tell you what he said, and obviously you can read it, you're holding your Bible, but I want to talk about some of the other things here. So they press forward, and all of a sudden this hurricane force wind begins to drive the ship along, and they're trying to go the opposite direction, but it's moving them in a, in a way that they don't want to go. So they take some matters into their own hands, and I'm not a, you know, a captain or a sailor, um, I do eat Captain Crunch, but um, so they take, that makes me an authority. So they take the anchor and they throw it down. And basically they're allowing the water to, and the wind to push the ship along. But they're dragging the anchor behind to slow it down, to keep it from just getting pushed with it. And hopefully the goal is that the hurricane will pass by them without the ship getting taken in. Well, it's beating the ship up so bad that this lifeboat that they had hooked up to it, They had to bring it on board. It's pretty bad when you bring your lifeboat on board of your boat, right? And then they take ropes and pass them under the ship to hold it together. It's just, you can imagine how scary this must have been. You're in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. A hurricane is there. 
um, winds are blowing, you don't know what's going on, you have to throw all of the furniture overboard, so now your bed, you're laying on planks, now who knows what they're laying on, he probably made a barrel for a pillow, I don't know. And so it says here that Paul stands up for them in verse 21, and he begins to address them after all of this. And he says, man, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete, right? This is like the moment where you're like, Paul, seriously? Come on. Okay, we know you're Apostle Paul, but you don't stand up and rub it in people's faces when you're on a ship. Because what they're going to do is they're going to throw you overboard, right? But Paul wasn't always the most tactful guy. But he says, you should have just listened to me. <laughs> here, let me rub a little salt in your wound. And then he says... He says, you should have taken my advice and spared yourself. Verse 22, but now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar, but God has graciously given you the lives of all who, who sail with you. So keep your courage, men, for I have faith in God, and it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So Paul has this incredible visitation from an angel. Uh, this isn't something new. Actually, Paul records a couple different times where he sees angels. And in fact, one time he's taken up into the third heaven um, and he speaks with Jesus personally. When he's saved in Acts chapter 9, he, sees Jesus, he hears the voice of Jesus uh, personally. So Paul had some pretty cool uh, opportunities to have spiritual experiences that not everybody gets. So he's in this boat. They're beginning to be scared. They think they're going to die. And God sends an angel to give them comfort and to encourage them. But he gives a criteria with the message. He says, listen, you're not going to die if you stick with me. If you stick with me. But if you go on your own and try and do this a different way, we're all going to die. It's not going to be good. So it's like all or nothing. That's the credentials or that's the criteria that, that the angel gives to Paul and which Paul in turn gives to them. And it says that, uh, he says, we're just going to have to run aground. So just keep your courage. We're just going to have to run aground on some island. And so it says in verse 27, after the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land, they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped their anchor from the stern and prayed for daylight. And it says, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors lit a lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. When Paul said to the centurion that the so and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, we cannot be saved. See, Paul's reiterating the criteria that the angel had given to him. We've got to stick together on this. It's all or nothing. Don't let these guys roll out on the lifeboat, because we're all going to die. And they're going to die too. And it says here that... Um, that Paul said, unless they stay with us. So verse 35, so the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. In other words, so they're, now it's pretty bad when you let the lifeboat go. Because no, it's like the ship, you're going down with the ship. If it goes down, that's it. And then it says there in verse 33, just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. And then as you read on there, I'll just fill you in because there's a lot to it. it. Basically, what it says is that Paul takes what's left of the food, breaks the bread, prays and thanks God, and eats some. And then he encourages them to do so as well. And they do. They take some food. Now, they haven't eaten for 14 days. The sun hasn't, shined, hasn't shone for 14 days. Now, I want to I give you some more of my nautical experience and knowledge. And you can share this. So you guys, if you're ever out at sea, 
you can use this, okay? So now you know you can throw down the anchor if it's a hurricane that you're in, which is just, I pray you never have to do with that. The other is, is that if, how do you think a ship navigates? What do you think they used to navigate? Because they didn't have GPS, they didn't have satellites, they didn't have iPhones, they didn't have sophisticated equipment. You know what they used? They used the stars. That's right, those of you guys that know, they used the stars. So what happens when, when there's a hurricane for 14 days and you don't see the stars? You get way off course and you have no idea where you are. You have no idea to know how to get to where you need to go. And in the daytime, when we have, you know, where does this, does anyone know which way the sun rises, in which direction? And it sets in the, wrong, it's the south, you've been wrong, no, I'm just kidding. It, it rises in the east and it sets in the west, right? So, when in the daytime, if it doesn't matter where you're going, in the morning as it wakes up, it, oh, there's the sun, it's coming, okay, well that's east, so if I know if that's east, then this must be north, so we need to go north. You can direct even by the sun, but if you can't see the sun, and you can't see the stars, and you're just floating aimlessly, you have no idea where you are. That's where they were. These guys were warned. They didn't know if they were going to end up in Antarctica. They didn't even know Antarctica existed. And they didn't even know if they were going to end up there or not. And so what's happening here is for 14 days, they're in complete and utter darkness. They have no idea what's going to happen to them. And in, in verse 20, it says they gave up all hope of being saved, actually, is what it says there. So they feel like they're as good as dead. There's over 200 people on board this ship. But the Apostle Paul is the only one in there that's speaking with a voice of reason and saying, my God is greater than this storm. My God is greater than anything we're going to face. And my God is going to rescue us if you stick with me. You hear me? This is what Paul's saying to a bunch of people who don't even believe in God. It's bold, but he's trusting. And then it says there that after, after he eats the, some food and encourages them, we know that they're going to end up on shore on an island called Malta. And this is where the snake bite comes in. Because what happens, they land on the island of Malta. The ship breaks to pieces. And all of the people make it on shore. And it's winter time. So it's kind of cold. So they make a fire. And as they're making a fire, Paul begins to grab some firewood. And he's taking the firewood to put it into the fire. And a poisonous snake latches itself onto his hand and bites him. And when the prisoners see this... They begin to judge Paul and say, oh, well, obviously because he was bit by a poison snake, even though we, we made it from the hurricane, he did something really bad, and he's going to die anyways. But Paul doesn't do that. He, he just throws the snake into the fire and burns it up, and he goes on like nothing ever happened, and then he doesn't die. And the people then who were saying, well, he obviously is being judged by God, then they begin to say, he must be a God because a poison snake hasn't killed him. And so then the people on the island who were the natives there, they're like, what in the world's going on? This guy's been bitten by a poison snake that we've all died from before, you know, other people, but he doesn't die. And so then Paul begins to use this as an opportunity to share the gospel with them. He ends up praying for all of the sick people on the island, and all of them get healed. And we're told that Paul is taken before the king of the island on Malta, and he stays with him for three months, and he, he basically has a three-month discipleship training program on the island of Malta and establishes a church there on, on Malta. How cool is that, right? And God just used everything and, and declared everything there. Now, Paul will end up going to Rome, and he'll end up dying as a martyr. We know that from church history. But there's some things that I want to point out to you about this that you can take home for yourself this morning, okay? So if you take notes, you might want to write this down. Go back with me into verse uh, uh, verse 11 of chapter 27 there. In verse 11. 
It says there in verse 11 that, uh, I'm going to try and find it here real quick on my own Bible. It says that, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. I want to point this out to you. God had, had safely or taken them to a harbor called Safe Harbor. God had placed them into a place that was going to be sufficient for them to stay for the entire winter if they needed to. It was not ideal. It wasn't the perfect harbor for them, but it was a safe harbor for them. And if they just would have waited there, they would have not had to go through any that they ended up going through. But the advice that was given to Julius the centurion was wrong because he trusted the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship rather than listening to the voice of the one who serves God, which would be Paul. And so Julius was faced in a moment where he had an opportunity to make a choice. Am I going to follow this way or am I going to follow that way? And I want to share with you that sometimes in our lives, God will place us in a safe harbor for a season where your life is securely placed in a, in, in a place where you will be safe from many storms and hurricanes and other things that could come upon you. The problem is, is that we don't always take the advice of the safe harbor or the choice of the safe harbor, and we follow the advice of someone else, even our own selves, and we choose to go out on our own adventure, cutting the lines to the safe harbor and sailing out into the open sea. Are you guys following me on this? You tracking with me? Okay, good, because there's a whole spiritual point to this whole thing. The point is, is that God places you in a safe harbor for your benefit, even though it may not feel like a safe harbor. Well, what do you mean, Turner? What do you mean by that? Let me share with you. Sometimes, and I deal with this a lot with, uh, with, with young adults, is they, they want to be married. They want to find a spouse. And so, and just like I'm sure many of you in here eventually want to be married, right? But maybe for you, it's I want to have a girlfriend or I want to have a boyfriend. I'm, I'm really waiting for that person. And sometimes you are in a season, yet you're forced to wait. I mean, you look in the mirror and you're like, why wouldn't anybody want to date me? I mean, I'm totally handsome or I'm totally, you know. You're like, it just doesn't make sense. It's not adding up, right? right? You know, it's like, why, why aren't they interested in me? I don't get it. And, and it's true, you are. You're attractive. You, know, you guys are beautiful. I'm looking at each one of you. You're beautiful, right? There's no reason why you're, you're, you should be having your doors knocked down, except for him. <laughs> Sorry, man, I just had to say it. It's, it's true. No, I'm just kidding. But the thing is, is for whatever reason, if God is sovereign over your life, and what that means is that God, you've surrendered your life to Jesus, you've given your life to him. That means literally the plans of your life you've placed in the hands of a capable God who's completely in love with you and knows what's best for you. And so you've taken your life and placed it in his hands. And when you do that, that means that all of the details of your life, where you're going to go to college, who you're going to end up marrying, what you're going to do with your life, how many kids you're going to end up having, all of those things are already preordained by God. He's written them out, and they just need to be lived out, but you have to trust Him for them. And that's the hard part, because sometimes when you're in the safe harbor, it's not where you want to be, but it's where you need to be. This is important for us to understand. Paul knew this is where they needed to be. But it wasn't necessarily where they wanted to be. They wanted to move on to Phoenix because Phoenix was way more fun. But safe harbor, safe haven was where they needed to be. And sometimes God places us in a safe harbor and what we do is we choose to say, you know, this safe harbor isn't fun for me. It's not, it's not doing it for me. I'm going to go do it on my own. I'm going to make it my own way. And then you go out into the open sea, and you run the risk of having an 
awesome, terrible storm come up into your life. Now, I'm not threatening you to say, if you don't do what God wants, you're going to have storms in your life. Storms are going to come regardless. They're going to come into our lives. It's just the nature of living in a sinful, fallen world. But wouldn't you rather have a storm come into your life when you're in a safe harbor rather than out in open sea? Right? And that's the difference here. Is it's unnecessary. It's un, it was an unnecessary shipwreck. And in the middle of the storm, in verse 11, it says that, or verse uh, uh, 20, it says that they gave up all hope of being saved. And I talked to a lot of Christians, and their life is in the middle of turmoil, and they're, part of the reason that their life is in turmoil and they're facing difficulties is because of choices that they've made that have gone contrary to what God's Word says. And as they face those difficult things, they begin to wonder if God even loves them. Well, if Jesus loved me, then why would he let this happen? Well, let me explain something to you. You made choices. You're reaping those choices. Jesus counseled you against those choices. Why are you blaming God for it? He told you no because he cared. But you chose not to take the counsel. And see, that's what happened with the pilot of the ship, the captain of the ship, isn't it? And Julius, the centurion. He didn't take the wise counsel that was given to him, and he went out into open sea. And so what happens is they begin to doubt what happens. Now, as you, if you'll notice, in the open sea, when the storm came, God tremendously used that storm to lighten up the ship, didn't he? They had to throw the furniture overboard. They ended up throwing the food overboard. They ended up cutting away the life raft, right? So what happens is in your life, sometimes when a storm enters into your world and begins to rock you, the things that are unnecessary for you, they begin to be cut away and thrown out, and it gets down to where it's just you and Jesus. And that's how God wants it. He wants it to be you and him, not you and I'm going to work this out some other way. It's not you and my, my friend is going to help me through this. It's not going to be you and some parent. It's going to be you and the, our Abba Father, God, Jesus. That's who it ends up being. And God cuts away everything else. Every other lifeboat that you have to try and jump on to get out of that storm, he cuts it away. And he does it on purpose. Because he's intimately desiring that you and him would know each other the way that he knows you. And he wants what's best for you. If we ignore the safe harbor that God's provided for us, we run the risk of truly floating into a storm that is unnecessary and experiencing heartache and pain and discouragement and confusion that we don't have to go through. We just don't have to go through it. And anybody who's taken control of their own life for a period of time and then come back to the Lord will agree with me 100%. They'll say, when I, when I became the pilot of my own ship and I left the harbor of God's word and God's people and did it my way, I ended up actually hurting myself. And if I had it all to do over again, I would never do it. I would just submit myself to God's word. I would trust God's word. Even though the safe harbor may not be fun for the, the season, it is appropriate and necessary, and it's what God has for us right now. If you just wait it out and trust in God and trust in God's word, I want you to hear me that he has a better way. And at the right time, he'll say, set sail. Set sail, my little ship. It's time for you to roll. Right? That's what he'll say when it's right. But right then was not the right time. So are you in a safe harbor today? Maybe you feel like this morning when you think about this that 
if you were to really evaluate your life in light of God's word, you would say, man, I'm actually drifting in the middle of an ocean that's raging, and there's a hurricane-force wind blowing in my life right now. My relationship with my parents is on the skids. My relationship with my friends, or my kids, my, uh, my kids, no. Hopefully you don't have kids. If you do, I'll pray for you. <laughs> my relationship with my siblings is on the, it's rocky. I don't even really, I'm, I'm forced to be brought here today. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here if your parents forced you to come here because you need to hear this. You hear me? Jesus loves you. He has a plan for your life and he wants you to know him the way that he knows you and he has a good thing in store for you. But you gotta get in it with him, not on your terms, on his terms. This is important for you. So if you're that person this morning, I wanna encourage you. The safe harbor is still open. You can get back. All you need to do is pray and ask Jesus to take you back into his safe harbor, his loving arms. And you just return to him. And you say you're sorry for what you've done. And you're sorry that you've captained your own ship and you've gone in your own way. And that you want him to take the wheel. You know, Carrie Underwood said it perfect. Jesus, take the wheel. Right, that's it, right? You want him to be the pilot of your life. And this is a perpetual thing. You will do this again and again and again and again in your life. I do it. I've been in the Lord for over 30 years. And I, on a daily basis, Jesus, control my life. Take control. I surrender it to you. I can't do this on my own. I need you and your wisdom and your grace. Amen? All right, let's pray. For additional teachings and to learn more about the Cornerstone Chapel Youth Group, visit us online at cornerstonechapel.net.